drive carefully. Call me when you get there. It's been so nice having you here. Oh, here's some snacks for your trip. Watch out for the other drivers out there. There'll be a lot of traffic on the road. I can't wait to see you come again. Uh, If you're sleepy, promise me that you'll pull over and rest. Maybe we can make it out there soon. Did, Did I say to be careful? Uh, You've probably uh, been a part of an exchange like that. I know I have. Someone you love, and maybe more than just one someone, maybe an entire family has been to visit, and it's been so good, but it's now time for them to leave. You've talked, and you've visited, and you've enjoyed one another's company. Now it's all over except for the goodbyes. You feel like there's so much more to say, but you're, you're standing by the car and those you love are about to get in and drive away. So with just a few moments left, you say those things which seem somehow to be most appropriate at such times. You, you communicate your love to them in different ways and your concern for them and your desire to see them again. The sentiments, uh, along with the words, are a bit of a hodgepodge, aren't they? <laughs> But everyone understands because their thoughts aren't much different. They feel the same way. Oh, I I suppose that we could memorize something like the old Irish blessing. You know the one, may the road rise up to meet you. May the wind always be at your back. And then recite it at such times. But, But somehow, though, that's a great sentiment. It doesn't seem as, I don't know, maybe personal or real. For me, anyway, I think I'd rather have the intimacy of the right then and muddle through it as usual. But I do want the wind at their backs. I really want the best for them, and they're leaving, and only God knows what the future holds. The wind at their backs. The Apostle Paul could identify with that if he were here today or if he had ever heard that saying. He certainly knew the poignancy and pathos of having to say goodbye. He had to do it any number of times. Even in his letter, there is a point where things had to come to an end. And to my ear, Paul's goodbyes in his letters sound a a little bit like mine when I'm standing by the car just before it pulls away. Certainly, he's a little more organized than me. He is writing a letter, after all, and has a bit more time to collect his thoughts. But that same intimacy and realness come through. And you have the same sense that he has so much more to say, but he ends up settling for that which seems most important at the moment. At least that's how chapter 16, at the end of Paul's letter to the Romans, sounds to me. So I want to invite you to join me there once again, and probably for the final time uh, this year uh, in the book of Romans, chapter 16. You can turn in your Bibles, or of course you can follow along uh, as a text are put on the screen. And you read chapter 16, Uh, If you've read it recently or if you think back to it, you you realize that it seems to be a bit of a hodgepodge. And yet there's more organization than one might think at first glance. But the eclectic 
feel in that part of the book uh, is there. And, and that sense of the miscellaneous uh, comes almost certainly because Paul has metaphorically taken a step back and he is seeing the Roman church as it fits into the bigger picture of God's work in our world. And because of that, he's saying what seems to him to be most appropriate at the time, and of course it seems to be appropriate to the Holy Spirit who inspires God's Word. And here we are at the close of the letter. Those truths which Paul saw and which he wrote to the Roman church those many years ago are as important to us in our day as when they were first penned. You and I and this church live in that same bigger picture. God is working in our day too. And the things Paul said to the Romans, he could say to us today. Now, there are other things going on here in this chapter. But the main idea we can summarize in five things, five statements that every believer ought to embrace. And we're going to look at each of them in turn. God is at work in our world today, and because of that, the follower of Christ should embrace the truth that we are part of something bigger than ourselves. You and I, and in a sense, more importantly, this church, are all part of what is often referred to as the universal church or the universal body of Christ. We at Y Bible Church, are a local expression of that reality. The church, in all of its glory, spans the centuries and is made up of all who have truly put their faith in Jesus Christ. And we find that concept in different places in the Scriptures, and especially in Paul's writing. And although he doesn't spell it out here, it informs his thoughts and his words. We have a little bit of work to get to it, but stay with me. In the first verse of this chapter, Paul commends uh, to the Romans this woman by the name of Phoebe, who was a member of the church in Centuria and who went to Rome. We're not told why she went. We just don't know. But she almost certainly was the person who delivered Paul's letter to the Romans. But in the next 14 verses, Paul instructs the Romans, and the tense of the verb is in the imperative. That's how a command or instruction is written. But I think here there's a little less sense of a command. and has maybe more a feel of a please do this. What he told them to do was to greet a total of 27 people by name, many of them who were Jews, but not all of them. And more significantly, they were to greet as many as five other churches in or around Rome. Now, the greeting may have been in Paul's name, but it was the Roman church that was to deliver those greetings. So Paul was driving home his point to the Romans that they weren't the only ones in the game. They were part of something larger than themselves. And verse 16 gives us insight into what those greetings actually meant. 
greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ send their greetings. The Romans were to greet those people and those other churches with the holy kiss, which sounds rather strange to us, doesn't it? I mean, that's not our custom here. So, so sometimes this holy kiss has, has been compared um, to our modern-day handshake. But it really is more than that. It's more personal than, than say, a handshake uh, in a business setting. Uh, it, it's a kiss, right? It, it's more like what we do on a Sunday when someone joins our church and we extend to them the right hand of fellowship. Meaning what? Well, meaning that we accept them into our family. We embrace them as someone we're going to share life with. Meaning by God's grace. We will love them as Christ instructed us. That's what greeting them with a holy kiss really means. And that's why Judas' betrayal of Christ with a kiss is so reprehensible. It was a betrayal at the deepest level, taking something holy and beautiful and, and using it for dark purposes. You, you can refuse to embrace others, but if you do, then answer me this. (laughs) Which side of the divide are you on? The refusal to embrace other churches and other believers is the precursor to betrayal. Now, this doesn't mean that we have to become some part of some worldwide ecumenical movement. It means we love and accept and rejoice in the truth that we are not the only ones in the game. It means we will never speak evil of another church, although we will call out the apostate and the cults. It means we will work together with other churches when it advances the kingdom of God. And it means that we will always speak well of this church as we live out the good news day to day. See, you and I, as followers of Christ and our church, we ought to know there is a bigger and deeper reality than we can see. We know God is at work in our world, so we ought to embrace this truth that we're part of something larger than ourselves. We're part of the universal church as it is spread out in power and glory throughout time. Of course, as we've already noted, not everyone who claims to be is a Christian. And so while we want to embrace our fellow believers, we have to guard against the rivals of the faith. So verses 17 through 19 address this, and there's a fair amount of information tucked into this short passage, so we're going to have to unpack it a bit. But we read in verses 17 and 18, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them, for such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of the naive. So we have to guard against certain people, but they're not quite as obvious as other enemies of the faith, such as those who are openly critical of Christianity. These are more like rivals or 
plants or spies sent in to destroy. They come among the people of God and they pretend to to be a part of the flock, but they reveal themselves as they cause divisions and put obstacles in the way of the faithful, hindering them instead of encouraging them. When I lived in Illinois, I was uh, one of the volunteer chaplains at the local hospital, and that hospital had a nursing home attached to it. So our duties included uh, visiting uh, those residents, too. And one woman there had been a lifelong member of a church of a particular denomination, which I won't name, but it, it has its struggles. And as we were talking one day, she told me how she missed those days when she trusted the Bible as the Word of God. And I told her she could still trust it as God's Word, and I asked her what had happened. And she replied, why, my minister told me it was just a book full of men's thoughts about God, and it's no more free from error than any other book written by men. And because of this so-called minister, this poor woman was divided from the great body of believers which has existed since the time of Christ and which has always trusted God's word. And her faith was hindered. She knew no longer what she could believe. And that's what they do. These rivals that we're talking about, they divide and they hinder the faith. And they're also, as the text tells us, only out for themselves, their own appetites drive them, and they manipulate people by their words. And again, while I was still in Illinois, I attended a funeral, and afterwards I spoke to the pastor. It was from a different denomination than the one I just referred to, and in our conversation, which took place uh, away from the crowd, I mentioned something about the hope of heaven. And he told me in no uncertain terms that he did not believe in heaven that he only spoke of it because it comforted others and it made his job easier. And that same pastor, in another setting, bemoaned the fact that he wasn't fast enough because a family from his congregation had just given a million-dollar gift to the local college instead of to his church. They manipulate and they pursue their own agenda. They divide and hinder the faith. And add to all of that, they pose a a particular danger, as the NIV puts it, to the naive. Now, that word naive, I think, may be a poor choice because in many of our minds, that term includes a hint of foolishness. So, so some people hear this and they say, the foolish are in danger of being led astray. And that problem is, it's in English, it's not in the Greek. See, in the original language, that word simply means innocent or unsuspecting. And in light of that, this warning becomes more ominous. It's the babes in Christ and the guileless and trusting the kind of people that we're naturally drawn to and love who are the targets of these rivals. Still, I know God expects all of his children to mature. As verse 19 says, everyone has heard about your obedience, so I rejoice because of you, but I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. See, all of us start out on milk, but we are to graduate to the strong meat of the world, 
of the word. Wise as serpents, but harmless as doves is the way Jesus puts it. So all of this fits together this way. Those who know the truth must be on guard, not just for themselves, but also in order to give the vulnerable a chance to mature. For at the bottom of the divisions and hindrances is always a doctrinal issue, as the text says, which is contrary to the teaching you have learned. So it is light that drives out the darkness. It's truth which exposes falsehood. Even as Jesus said, the truth will set you free. So leaders in the church, pastors and elders and deacons and teachers are responsible to provide for the instruction of the saints and to be an example to them. And those rivals who are able to hurt the faithful, we are able to encourage them and strengthen them in their walk, helping them to mature. And we do that by providing solid biblical teaching. We need to study the Bible. Book studies like Kingdom Men and our experience in God are good in their way, but they are not a substitute for studying God's Word. Good preaching does that. It helps us understand God's Word, but it's not enough by itself. You know, preaching and teaching are complementary. The target of preaching, by design, is the heart, and it's meant to move us in our souls immediately. Its effect on the head is indirect and comes over time. Teaching, on the other hand, is aimed at the head to inform us, and it migrates to the heart over time as we attempt to live out our lives. And so preaching builds on teaching. The intake of God's Word is enabled by preaching. No pastor or minister can do all that needs to be done on their own. We depend on those called by God to come alongside of us and to teach his word to his people. I have to tell you something. I don't know a better way to do that than Sunday school. Now, people come here Sunday anyway. They're already here. It's not another night out. It does mean you have to get up earlier, but when else is it going to happen When people come to Sunday school, both parents and children are taught God's Word. And it's every week, week in and week out, month to month, year to year, for we never grow, outgrow our need for God's Word. And we ought to embrace the truth that there is a bigger and deeper reality than that which we can see, that God is at work in our world, that we are part of the universal church as it is spread out in power and glory throughout time. But there are rivals, spies sent to destroy, who target the vulnerable, who are out only for themselves and manipulate others, who bring division and hinder the faith, especially of the vulnerable. And we are the ones who have to guard against that by the sound teaching of God's Word. Now, those thoughts were very much on Paul's mind as he was saying goodbye to the Romans. 
And then he spoke a word of encouragement to him. Actually, uh, two words, <laughs> which are our next two points. And they go together. They can't exist apart, but we're going to look at them one at a time. And the word tells us that we will defeat the devil. As we see in the beginning of verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. You are meant by God to win. (laughs) Crushing Satan under our feet is a poetic way of saying that. Now, Now, I don't know what image comes to your mind when you hear those words. Maybe you think of um, stepping on a bug, but Satan is more powerful than that. I remember a video I saw of a hippopotamus trampling a crocodile, but then we're not as powerful as a hippo. The real picture is different than either of those, I think. For you and I, we don't win this battle by ourselves. Maybe the better picture here is a stampede of cattle as they run over the lion, trampling to death that which would kill them. You see, we're part of something greater than ourselves, and together with our brothers and sisters, that's how we crush Satan under our feet. The promise was made to the Roman church. And it's one more reminder of how important it is to be part of a local expression of the body of Christ. The Lone Ranger Christian, they're simply fodder for the devil. They're disregarding the teaching of God's word. They have little impact for good, especially since they point people away from the church, which is God's church and his design which he promises to build seen in that light their arrogance is simply stunning you can see how dynamic all of this is the church isn't just a group of people it's not just a crowd that tramples satan The, the church does it it's the god of peace who uses his church spread out in glory and expressed locally, which protects the weak within its own walls. And he uses it to accomplish his work to the defeat of the evil one. You and I are part of that. Now, those of you who know your Bible know this passage reflects the very first promise of the coming of our Savior found in Genesis, where Eve is told that one of her descendants would crush Satan under his feet. Uh, His heel would be bruised, referring to the cross, but he would defeat the devil, which he did when he rose, and which he is still doing through us. Which brings us to the other point. The grace of Jesus Christ is with us. So verse 20 again, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. God's grace through Jesus Christ is ours. And if we're to go up against the evil one, and it's obvious that we are meant to do that, then we need God's grace. You and I have no real power on our own. But we're not on our own. He's with us. 
He has promised never to leave us or forsake us. All power in heaven and on earth is his, and he is always with us even to the end of the age. And it is by God's grace, through his grace, that we are victors, that we will win. You and I are as flimsy as a glove. A glove has no strength on its own. It accomplishes nothing by itself. Alone, it's useless. But when someone takes that glove and puts it on, it becomes as strong as the one wearing it. And it accomplishes whatever the wearer wants. And it's no longer useless because it's no longer alone. And the strength of God, by his grace, fills us with him in us. The devils tremble, and we will overcome. Arrogance has no place here. Pride's banished. Humility recognizes the glory and power of God is grateful to be part of his work. We rejoice that he is at work. We are a local expression of the universal church spread out in all its power and glory through time. And by sound teaching of God's word, we guard the flock against the rivals, the spies who seek to do the will of the evil one, whom we as a church crush under our feet by the power of God within us through the grace of Jesus Christ. And finally, because of our God and for his glory, we are established for all time verses 25 through 27 now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel the message i proclaim about jesus christ in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal god so that all the gentiles might come to obedience that comes from faith To the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. It is to God's glory that our eternity is secure because of what Christ has done for us. Now, there's a great deal going on here in this benediction, but the skinny of it is, as we've already said, is we are established for all eternity, all because of God and for his glory. We're established by the gospel when we put our trust in Jesus who died to pay for our sins. And if we put our faith in him, we are born again and we have received eternal life. They're like a, a mighty rock protruding out of the chaos of the ocean. Christ receives us and he gives us a place to stand. And all of this was spoken ahead of time. All of it was part of God's plan right from the very beginning, but not clearly understood until Jesus came and fulfilled all that was written. Like the shadows of things in a dark room, they were seen but vaguely. And as soon as that light is turned on, we know our surroundings. Uh, So it was when the light of the world entered the world. We see clearly now because of him. We are established all because of God and all for his glory. Why Bible Church? We are a local expression of the universal church. 
And we, by the sound teaching of God's word, guard the flock against those who do the will of the evil one. And you and I together, this church, along with all churches throughout this world, are crushing Satan under our feet by the power of God within us through the grace of Jesus Christ. And he is the one God, our great God, who has made our eternity secure all for his glory. Romans, final shot. Paul's parting shot here is you belong. Be on your guard. You are meant to win. Grace is yours and God has established you. And it really is altogether fitting that Romans ends with a prayer. For the believer, when we say goodbye, prayer ought to be one of the ways that we do it. I've told you before how in the early church, as they ended their weekly meeting together, uh, since the pastor was never sure whether he would see any of his flock again because of persecution, he would rise his, raise his right hand in a symbolic touching of everyone that was there, and he would say the benedictus, the good words that we call the benediction. They ended their time together with a prayer, seeking God's blessing for who all who were gathered. And most churches follow that example today, though the circumstances have changed. We often begin with prayer, too, don't we? At least it's near the beginning because we want God's blessing on what happens. In our personal lives, we can do the same things. We can strive to make prayer a part of our lives. Maybe we don't manage it all the time, but isn't sometimes better than never? When I was a child, we would travel to North Carolina, usually a couple times a year. We had family there, and the visits were always so good. But then there was a time to say goodbye. It was never any fun. It was a time of sadness, and I can still, to this day, feel that sorrow in my heart. One time in particular, though, it it stands out in my mind. We were getting ready to leave, and everyone that was there gathered together in a circle, and we held hands. We were standing in the front yard next to the highway, and occasionally a car truck would drive by. And And I often wondered what they thought as they saw us standing there as we prayed. One person prayed for everyone who was there for a safe trip and for blessing for all. Maybe one or two others added something, but not everyone prayed. But it was enough. We were seeking God. We were looking for his blessing on those that we loved. Somehow, even as a child, I knew that what was happening was wonderful beyond words. I I couldn't have said it that way then, but looking back, I know that's what I felt. I wasn't real comfortable with it. I wasn't a Christian then, but I knew it was good. And it sweetened the sadness somehow. Maybe that prayer in the front yard happened one other time when we were there. I, I honestly don't remember. Before that, though, even when I was younger, there was always prayer before we left, though it it made no real impression on me other than becoming a part of my memory as 
my childhood. But we always prayed before he left. And then somehow, all of that fell away. Maybe we'd become too accustomed to travel. <laughs> Maybe we just were so rushed to get on the road and get going. Maybe we simply let go of something precious. There are those times, though, when we need it. Maybe it's something we ought to bring back into our lives. Times when it would be good to pray. Don't you know that? Don't you feel that? We want God's blessing on our life, don't we? For those we love, we want the wind at their back. Prayer honors God who pours out his blessing on his people here. You belong. Be on your guard. You are meant to win. Grace is yours. And God in Christ has established you. Now go with him always. Wherever he leads you. Would you pray with me please? Every good and perfect gift has come from above. From our Heavenly Father, with whom there is not even a shadow of turn. You wait for us, Lord. You call us. You draw us. You teach us. And you will bring us home to glory. And for this we thank you and ask that you would take us and change us this day. In Jesus' name, amen.